morning. It's good to see you all out there. I invite you to come in and find a seat and, and uh, we'll start our worship this morning. As you are coming in and, and we're getting settled into place, I do want to remind you that it is our membership month. We're focusing on uh, filling out these membership cards. So on the front side or back side, however you want to look at it, there's four statements uh, about basic statements about who we are and what we're about here at Union Baptist Church. So I would encourage you to read through those. And then on the back, you can fill out your name and address, phone number, and an email, and then select whether or not you do want to continue on in membership, you want to, you're want you not interested in membership, or you would like to speak with one of the pastors about your, your uh, spiritual matters. And then please sign that at the bottom. We would like to have it printed at the top and signed at the bottom. Uh, that way, one, we can read it, and two, we can we have verification that that's actually you and, and not somebody else. So uh, would invite you to do that. And one per person. So like Lindsay did one, I've done one, Mackenzie's done one. So each individual person uh, needs to do that. So then you can turn those in. There's a basket out there in the foyer on the table. So turn those in there if you would, please. So I've got a couple different verses that I'm going to get to as I go through uh, my, my opening here, I've, uh, but I'm not going to direct you to them necessarily. I'll just read them as I go through. So some of you all may know that this is what we call Sanctity of Life Sunday. And the whole idea there is, is uh, the anniversary of Roe versus Wade is, is coming up this Wednesday. And so for years now, churches have, have set aside time on the Sunday right before that to recognize uh, life issues, to speak up for the unborn, and to pray for our nation and things like that. So we kind of want to recognize that, so I've got something here that I'm going to just read through. On January 22nd, 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court delivered a landmark decision in which the court ruled that the Constitution of the United States protects a pregnant woman's liberty to choose to have an abortion without excessive government restriction. This decision also struck down many U.S. state and federal abortion laws that had restricted abortions prior to this decision. So today, as I mentioned, is Sanctity of Life Sunday, and every year churches observe this day on the Sunday before the Roe v. Wade anniversary. The reason we want to observe this day is to stand in solidarity with other believers and with God and declare together that all human life is special and should be protected. In no way do we make our stand to shame those who have had an abortion. Rather, we stand to dignify and protect all human life, including those who have had abortions. We offer redemption, forgiveness, love, grace, and the hope of the gospel that cleanses the guilt and stain of every sin, including the sin of abortion. So in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And again in Psalm chapter 139, verses 13 through 17, we read this, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Will you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning and we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the truth of it. God, we're thankful for redemption. But we also want to thank you for the sanctity of human life and for the joy that we get from being image bearers. And God, we root those two things in the texts and other texts like this that we've, that we've read today. But going back to the Genesis text, you made us in your image. Every man, woman, and child, every uh, unborn child is an image bearer of God mandated to, to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth and to fill the earth. And so, God, we thank you that you love us, that you've thought enough of us to create us, to, to mark us in such a special way above and beyond all other things that you've created, 
We are special to you. Every human life is special to you. And we thank you for the joy and the privilege of bearing that mark, of bearing that, uh, that uh, honored status, God. But we also thank you for the forgiveness of sins. God, as we recognize this Sunday, uh, there have been millions of children, millions of U.S. citizens, millions of lives that have been ended through abortion. And God, we know that, that it is evil. We know that it is a dark stain on, the, on, the, on our morality as a nation. But we also know that there is forgiveness for these sins in Jesus Christ, that there is no sin so dark, so, so deep that it cannot be taken and, and defeated and eradicated and forgiven through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so rather than just focusing on the darkness of the sin, we rejoice in the light of the Savior. We praise you and thank you, O God, that, that you forgive sins like this but we do confess lord that it is wrong and we pray that you would turn our nation from sins like this god that we would value life that we would no longer enact laws that that make it easier and easier to have uh, abortions god and that we would uh, that that our government officials and and those who make laws god would be changed and transformed by conversion that their hearts oh god would be saved and, and set right and their thinking would reflect that and the laws that we enact would reflect that and we rejoice that many states have have put laws in place to protect life and we pray that they would flourish we pray that they would continue god we ask that you would heal the pain and remove the shame that abortion has caused in our nation but more specifically in the lives of men and women who have participated in them God, we ask that you would take the guilt, that you would take the weight, that you would take the, the burden of that away because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we rejoice that that burden does not have to continue to be borne by those who have fled for refuge in Christ. And so, God, we ask that you would make our church a place that is full of grace and a refuge for sinners, God, because we, we recognize that this is an issue that touches home. God, that likely there are people that sit in our pews that have been affected by this, and we want to be sensitive to that. We want to be gracious and loving and extend care and, and, and grace to them. And we ask, God, that you would create such a refuge in, in Union Baptist Church. And we thank you, God, finally, for the coming reign of Jesus Christ that will make all things new, that he will come and set up a kingdom wherein righteousness dwells and remove every stain of sin, Every, every deep and weighty thought, God, uh, because of sin will be cast away and we will do nothing but rejoice in the presence of a righteous and eternal rule of a God who favors life. And we rejoice in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's have our ushers come forward this morning for our offering. As they're coming, I would um, just remind you of one of the, the ministries that we seek to, to support. Uh, a while back, we had CareNet uh, here to speak to us about their ministry uh, in, in Owensboro. So this is a crisis pregnancy center. Uh, they seek to reach uh, young mothers and, and young people who are find themselves unexpectedly pregnant and considering abortion. And they do that by just talking them through that, providing ultrasounds. Uh, and then also on the backside, when, when they uh, follow through and have the child, uh, they, they try to provide them with diapers and things that they would need. Uh, that's a great ministry to support. I know there are, there are some here that are supporting that individually, and we, we took up a collection. Uh, but I would certainly encourage you to be praying for them. Uh, and if you'd like more information about how you could uh, personally help support them, uh, you, could, you could talk to me about that. So let's pray this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we, we come to you, and uh, Lord, we are grateful, Lord, that no matter what's happening, whether we are experiencing your blessing in the moment or whether we're going through a valley and through a difficulty, Lord, we, we know because of what you've done for us in Christ and the hope that we have of eternal life uh, that we can truly say, blessed be your name. You give and take away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And so, Lord, I pray this morning for perhaps one here uh, who is in a dark place, I pray that you would, in the middle of their trial, that you would show yourself faithful, that you would be near to them, that you would comfort them in this dark time, and, and that you would give them uh, a greater hope for things to come. God, we do pray as we take up this offering, we ask for your blessing on it. We, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be a generous people and, and that we would be able to use this money wisely to support 
faithful gospel ministries. We do lift up CareNet, Lord, and pray that you would supply all of their needs, help their impact to grow exponentially over this coming year. Uh, Lord, something like 96% of the the young people who come in there considering an an abortion uh, changed their mind. And so, Lord, what, what a great ministry that is. And we pray that you would bless it and cause it to flourish, provide for it, uh, and use us, Lord, to be the, the means of that provision. And we ask all of this in the, in the name of Christ. Amen. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter 2. We're continuing our series this morning in the book of Hebrews. Uh, we're going to do something maybe a little bit different. One, uh, we're, we're going to stay in this text, but, but two, we're going to... Um, talk as Jared mentioned earlier that it is sanctity of of life Sunday and so we want to think about that issue in particular uh, because this is a a day to to think about that and contemplate that but we're going to do so through the frame and the 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 framework and and the viewpoint of this text because I actually think there's there's something very important that this text uh, has to say on on the issue of abortion Uh, so we're in Hebrews chapter 2 Uh, We're going to come back next week to verses 1 through 4, but we'll just begin in verse number 5 this morning, Hebrews rather, chapter 2, verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering and death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Well, you remember if you were here with us last week, the, the context of, of what's going on. Uh, the, the writer of Hebrews is, is writing to a, a group of mainly Jewish people who have heard of the gospel. They have believed in Jesus Christ. They have left really everything that they know, right? Many of them probably uh, would have had to break ties with their family in order to begin to follow Jesus Christ. They've left it all behind, but now they're, they're beginning to struggle with some doubt. There, there are some difficulties going on in their lives that, that are leading them to question whether or not they should continue to, to follow Christ, or maybe if it just be better, they forget about this whole thing, they just go back to their families, they go back to Judaism, their old way of life, what they know, what they knew their whole life, and, and just go back and everything would, would be easier. The writer of Hebrews then is writing to them to say, don't do that. Instead, persevere in your faith. Persevere, continue to follow Jesus Christ. And and the main argument that he makes for them continuing to follow Jesus Christ is that Jesus is far superior than anything that you came out of. Everything in your religion that you left behind to come and put your faith in Christ and to begin to follow him, Jesus is greater than all of those things. In fact, because it was from the Old Testament, the, the writer saying all of those things that you looked at in the Old Testament, every part of your religion that you came out of actually points forward to Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the pinnacle of, of everything that the Jewish people have been waiting for. Now, one of the things that we talked about last week is that the Jewish people had a very high regard for angels. In fact, sometimes... Uh, too high of a a regard sometimes they even slipped into what we might call worship it it seems that there there were pockets of people who who uh, began even worshiping angels and so the writer of Hebrews is writing in particular that to say don't go back to Judaism don't leave Christ because Jesus is far superior than angels and that's the argument he's been making We, we looked beginning at verse Uh, number five of chapter one 
And he's going all the way through where we're at now in chapter 2, verses 5 through 10. And he's just laying out argument after argument to say Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than angels. And he's going back and he's quoting the Old Testament. He's saying this is what angels are. This is who angels are. And this is who Jesus is. And he's greater than, than the angels. In our text this morning, the, the particular argument that he's making is that Jesus is the one to whom the world to come has been subjected. God did not subject the world to come to angels. Instead, he has subjected the world to come to Jesus Christ, to his son. And so this is another text that points us really to the kingship. I'm going to call it the kingship of Jesus Christ. That, that is that, that Jesus, through his, through his life, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension has earned a spot as the supreme ruler of all things in this universe. That's one of the things that Jesus has accomplished through the gospel. Sometimes, and I've mentioned this before, sometimes we are so narrowly focused in, in the way that we think about the gospel. What did Jesus accomplish by coming to this earth? Well, most of us would always just say, well, he, he brought us forgiveness he died on the cross so that we could be forgiven of our sins and be made right with God. That's right. That's one dimension. That's one aspect of what Jesus has done. A second or another aspect or dimension of what Jesus has done is that he's come to save this world. That he's remaking a world in which he's going to be the king and he's going to rule and reign supremely forever and ever and ever. And every time I preach about this, we looked at it in Ephesians and we've seen it in, in other texts. I, I, I think sometimes somehow there's a, a disconnect with us. I don't know that we really appreciate the reality of the fact that Jesus is going to rule and reign, that he is right now ruling and reigning as, as the king. So what I want to do first is just hopefully try to incite you to some excitement about this reality. I don't know about you, but, but I grow frustrated with this world. I grow frustrated with what we see in our own country, what we see all around the world. When, when you look at humanity and you look at the kind of atrocities, the kind of injustice, the kind of oppression, the kind of wickedness that has continued uh, all over the world, I, I grow weary of sin and murder and rape and sexual assault and racism, and oppression, and injustice, and, and unrighteousness. I grow weary of, of wars, and dropping bombs, and shooting missiles. I, I'm not always opposed, because you do have to protect yourself. We, we understand that, but don't you get, I don't think any of us should, should be excited about that. There's a weariness that comes when, when we see war after war after war. I grow tired of people in power being corrupt, and governing for their own selfish interest. Am, am I the only one that, that grows tired of that? I'm tired of the rich and powerful elites being able to skirt justice. I grow tired of hearing of dictators who keep millions of people in poverty so that they can maintain power. I'm tired of hearing about civil wars and political instability and about persecution of Christians all over the world. And I'm tired this morning of, of hearing about the, the great atrocity of, of abortion, of a hearing about millions and millions and millions of babies who have been killed over the last few decades in our country alone. And this is just one more reason that, that we look at this world and we just think something is messed up, something is wrong. What, what is the solution for all of this? Well, we tend to look at political structures and laws and leaders to fix these problems. In, in fact, I think that's, that's probably the right response in one sense because it's deeply ingrained within us, isn't it? To, to look to somebody needs to fix this. We need somebody in power who can do what's right, who, who can put away injustice and evil and, and who can decree and actually accomplish a just society, a righteous society. Wouldn't that be wonderful? That's, that's what we look to, and that's why every few years, in fact, in just a few months, 
Many of you are already worked up about it and you'll be even more at a frenzied pace uh, when, when it comes to the election here in a few months. And you're thinking, if we can get the right people elected, if, if we could get the right leaders, you see how deeply that's ingrained in us? Somebody's got to fix this mess. There are so many distortions. There are so many things wrong with our world. And, and, and maybe if we elect the right people, they could make it right. Do you see how that's our, our natural uh, response to these things? We, we, we seem to look that way. What I would say is that solution in a sense is right, but we're looking for it in the wrong place. We do need a ruler. We do need someone with political power to make these things right. But it's not going to be an elephant or a donkey who does it, right? It's going to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, ruling and reigning is going to be the only one who will once and for all finally bring justice and equity and righteousness into this world. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about Jesus being the king. That's, that's what we're talking about. That's why I celebrate that. Yes, I celebrate my individual, uh, the forgiveness of sins that God has given to me and my restored relationship. That's Yes, that's the central part of the gospel. But this is another dimension, another factor in the gospel is that God is going to make this world new. In fact, Peter talks about it in 2 Peter 3.13 that, that we're looking for a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Aren't you longing for a world in which righteousness dwells, in which there is no murder, in which there is no rape, in which there is no oppression and injustice, in which there is no abortion? Aren't you longing for that day? Listen, Jesus has done and accomplished the work that was necessary to bring that about. And when he returns, we will see it fully. I want to show you this morning that, that our hope that I'm talking about here is what this text is, is really talking about. And then I, I want to just take a, a few minutes and think about some implications of this reality for the issue of abortion in particular. So let's jump into the text and let's look at verse 5 and just see that what, what I have tried to just describe to you and hopefully create in you a little bit of an appetite and a desire for that is, is exactly what this text is, is saying that Jesus has done. So verse 5 is the thesis statement. He says, For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. So that's a negative statement. So, so let me just turn it around and make it a positive statement so it is a little bit clearer, which is, I think, this. God has subjected the world to come to Jesus. God has subjected the world to come to Jesus and not to angels. He's making that argument, Jesus is greater than angels. But the, the focus is God has subjected the world to come to Jesus. Now, we think about what is, what is the world to come. Uh, you, you could see uh, throughout the book of Hebrews is clearly talking about heaven. He talks about it in different ways. Here he calls it the world to come. In Hebrews 11, 14 through 16, he talks about people from the Old Testament, and he says this, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. You know, Abraham left his country, and he was a, a sojourner on this land, and he was looking for a place to call home. And, and he says, look, Abraham never found that home in this world. He was looking for a better country that is a heavenly one. Abraham had eyes of faith. Hebrews 13, 14 uh, says, for here we have no lasting city. You might call Hallsville your home, but, but it's not going to be your home forever. We have no lasting city, but we see the city that is, we seek the city that is to come. Again, another way to describe heaven. It's a, it's a heavenly country. It's a city that is to come. Hebrews 12, 22, he says this, but you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, to heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gatherings. So here he calls it Mount Zion, and he calls it uh, the heavenly Jerusalem. So, so there's a world to come, there's a homeland, there's a, a better country, a heavenly country, a lasting city, Mount Zion, the city uh, of the living God, 
heavenly Jerusalem. And that's what we're longing for. And so when he says that God has subjected the world to come to Jesus, that's what he's talking about, this, this heavenly city uh, that, that we're going to live in. Notice, notice that there's a continuity between the way that we describe the place that we live now and heaven, right? Sometimes I think we get a, a mystified sort of view of heaven that, it, that it's just like clouds and we're floating around. It's very ethereal. It's not very tangible. But, but here in the Bible, in the New Testament, the way that it's described is really like, like where we live now, but much, much better. It's a city. It's a homeland. It's a, a country, but it's a heavenly city. It's a heavenly homeland. In, in the New Testament, the Bible says that, that God is going to make a new heavens and a new earth. A new heavens. In fact, that passage that we read in 2 Peter, uh, a new heavens and new earth wherein righteousness dwelleth. So the place that we're going, this world to come, is not us just floating around on clouds. It's a new heavens and new earth. We're going to live in places much like we live now, in, in my opinion, as I read these texts, but they're going to be freed from sin. This place that we're going to live is, is much like where we live now, except Jesus is going to be king and he's going to rule over it in complete righteousness there will be no wickedness there will be no immorality there will be no rape no murder no war and so on it's going to be a place of perfect righteousness and that's what he's saying here God didn't subject the the world to come to angels he subjected it to Jesus Christ Jesus is greater and so why would you why would you leave Christ why would you turn away from Christ why would you drift away from Christ because he's the one to whom the world to come is subjected now what we see now in verses six through eight is that man in his ideal state was created to rule god's world so jesus the world to come has been subjected to jesus but but originally when god created this world he created us humanity to rule over it and to have dominion over it. And that's what the psalmist, or that's what the writer of Hebrews is reflecting on. He quotes a passage from Psalm 8. And so let's just read verses 6 through 8 really quickly. It has been testified somewhere. I guess he was doing like I do sometimes when you're writing. He's like, I can't really remember where that's at, but somewhere it's been written. Well, we, we, we can find that it's in Psalm 8. I'm, I'm sort of being a little facetious there. Uh, but it's been testified somewhere, Psalm 8. Let's just clarify that. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower, the, lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So the psalmist in Psalm 8 is praising God and he's, he's stopping and he's looking back and he's reflecting on this world. He said, I look up at the heavens and I see the vastness and the glory of everything that God created. And I think to myself, who am I? Who, who am I that God who made all of this would subject all of this to me? That, that he would give us dominion and authority over all of this. That, that he would take the care and, and, and exercise the power to create this marvelous universe. And then he would say, here you go. It's yours to rule over and exercise dominion. And, and the psalmist himself is, I think, re, re, reflecting on the, the creation account in Genesis 1. So we're going from Hebrews to, to Psalms. He's quoting the psalmist. The psalmist is reflecting back on Genesis 1. You remember the creation account, don't you? Uh, where God said in Genesis 1.27, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. So God creates this world. And then he says to Adam and Eve, look at this world. You fill it, populate it, have children, be fruitful and multiply. This is yours to exercise dominion over, rule over it. And now the psalmist is reflecting on that text in Genesis, and he's thinking, who am I? Who are we that, that God would bless us in this way? 
Let me just stop before we, we move on here. Do, do you ever stop and marvel at the reality that God has given you this world to enjoy? Do you ever stop and praise God for that? Why, why would God make this world? What, what an act of grace and kindness that he would make this world and that he would, that he would sort of, in a sense, hand it over to us and, and allow us to have dominion over it and to live in his creation and to enjoy it and to use it as if it was ours, though he, he is the one who created all things. Now, let's move on in, in this passage in Hebrews. What we see, though, is that although God created the world and he gave man dominion, he put him in a place of authority. In verses 8b through 9, we find that because of sin, we don't really see that dominion right now. So let's read verse 8. Uh, 8b he says now in putting everything in subjection to him that is to mankind he left nothing outside his control at present we do not see everything in subjection to him so we've got the text in genesis god says you've i've created the world you exercise dominion but when you look at this world do you see us really having dominion over this world do you see mankind exercising dominion? We might say, in a sense, there's some level of dominion and authority over this world, and yet we can say, we're not really in control of the world that we live in. We can't even control our bodies, let alone our universe or our world. No single factor so clearly demonstrates that as the reality of death. The fact is that we are to exercise dominion over creation, yet we can't even control our own bodies. No matter how advanced we get, no matter how scientific, how many scientific discoveries we make, no matter how far in the universe we're able to travel, no matter what technology we invent, no matter how many diseases we're able to cure, the reality is we're still going to die. There is no cure ultimately for death. We can cure this disease and that disease and we can see something of our dominion and yet at the end of the day, we're still going to die. That dominion that we were created to have is seen to be very frail. It's, it's not there at all. We don't ultimately have that dominion over this world. So he's saying at present, when you look at the world, we don't see, verse 9, we don't see all things in subjection to man. Tom Schreiner says this, he says, yes, human beings were destined to rule the entire world for God. Everything was supposed to be under the rule and dominion of human beings, but sin intervened to frustrate this rule. Death, which is due to sin, thwarts human dominion over the world. The glory designed for human beings has not become a reality in human history. Instead, human history is littered with the wreckage of destruction and death, a world gone mad. Let's move on in verse 9 then. In verse 9 we see Jesus, the Son of, of God, became man in order to deliver us from death and regain man's dominion. This is where we started when, when I began. Part of the work of what Christ has come to do is not just bring you personal forgiveness, but he has come to regain man's dominion. You see, Jesus was the Son of God. He was one with the Father, eternally part of the Trinity, right? Uh, and, and yet he became a man. And one of the things that he was doing when he became a man was to die for other men and women. He became like us so that he could die in our place. But the other thing that he was doing when he became a man was he was regaining the dominion that men and women were supposed to have over this world. And that's what we see the point in verse number nine. So he says in verse eight, we don't see everything in subjection to him, but verse number nine, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now let's look at a few little phrases there to help us understand what is that verse saying so he's saying man was created to have dominion but right now we don't see that dominion but what do we see verse 9 we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels who's that talking about it's talking about christ what does it mean that he was made a little lower than the angels 
Well, up in the passage that we just quoted from Psalms, those who were a little bit lower than the angels, a little lower than the angels, were mankind. So it's saying the son was made a man. He was made a little lower than the angels. And then he says in verse number nine, and uh, he was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. We see him crowned with glory and honor. What does that mean? What does it mean in verse nine that he says that Jesus was made lower than the angels and he's been crowned with glory and honor? Well, when we look back again to the verses six through eight, that citation from uh, the book of uh, yeah, the book of Psalms, chapter eight, uh, what we find is that same exact expression. Look at verse seven. You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. There it's talking about mankind. It's saying you made man a little lower than the angels, which is actually a place of great honor. And you crowned him with glory and honor. Namely, you put all things in subjection under his feet. That was being crowned with glory and honor. It it was an act of God bestowing glory and honor on us that he would give us this position of dominion over his creation. We have been crowned with that glory and honor. But now he's saying Jesus for a little while was made lower than the angels and he has been crowned with glory and honor. Meaning that this world has been put in subjection under his feet. In other words, through his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, he has regained that authority. He has regained that dominion that we lost through our sin and through our rebellion. Jesus came and has restored sort of humanity's initial Uh, purpose in ruling over this world he is now in that position of ruling and reigning and he did that it says through his death why was it accomplished through his death well what did we say was the the chief way that we understand that we really don't have dominion over this earth we die that that's the big sign you don't control the world The world controls you. You don't conquer the world. The world conquers you. Every man and woman, no matter how great, no matter how big their accomplishments are, all of them die. They don't have dominion over this world. They they are in subjection, in slavery to death. But now Jesus comes and through death, he defeats death. And now he regains this position of dominion and authority because he has conquered death for us. When we think about this, you you can think about passages like Matthew 28 where Jesus has resurrected and he's going to give the great commission. And what does he say to them? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. You see Jesus saying, I have the dominion. I'm in this position of dominion over this world. Now you go as my disciples, as my representatives and, and make disciples. Make disciples for me. All authority in heaven and earth. Or we could talk about Ephesians, which we preach through in in Ephesians 1, 19 through 23, where Paul prays and he says, I want you to know the power of God that's at work in you. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and has seated him in a place of supreme authority over this world, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Why is this such good news? Maybe I'm losing you here because we're trying to walk through and see this. But why is this such good news? What does this mean? This means that Jesus is going to rule this world and he's going to make it right again. What what we messed up, all the evil that has been infused into this world all the things that are distorted and broken, all the things that we wish that a political leader could fix for us, but they never can, Jesus is going to fix. He's going to make this world right again. And that's a glorious, glorious truth. And the reason he's going to do that is because he's regained this position of dominion and authority over this world for us. What we lost, he's regained. Now, I said I wanted to do two things 
and we've done the first. Hopefully, you, you followed with me. But secondly, what I want to do is just think quickly about some, some application to the issue of abortion. I want to come back and just think about this wonderful gospel truth and, and apply it to this horrendous issue of abortion. And I want us to see three things. The first is this. Abortion wickedly distorts mankind's dominion over this world. Abortion wickedly distorts mankind's dominion over this world. Remember, I said God created this world, and in a sense, he handed it over to us. We've become stewards of it. He's saying, I've created this world as mine, but I'm giving you the use of it. I'm allowing you to rule over it, Adam, and, and us. I'm giving you authority to use this world and, and, and we have distorted that. And, and in particular, the sin of abortion is one of the most heinous distortions of the dominion that God has given to us. A few reasons I say that. First, when abortion is a distortion because it rejects God's authority over us. When, when God has given us authority to exercise dominion over this world, it's not an autonomous authority. It's still his world. It still belongs to him. We need to think of ourselves as managers and stewards. So, so you can imagine, right, uh, if, if you owned a restaurant, say, and you hire a, a manager and you say, okay, listen, you're, you're in charge of day-to-day -day operations. You run this thing. Uh, it's mine, but I'm, I'm going to be hands-off. Uh, in, in a sense, and I'm going to let you make the decisions. I'm going to let you hire and fire. I'm going to let you deal with customers. Uh, you're, you're running this thing, so, so to speak. That's the kind of delegated authority that we have when it comes to this world. So we need to rule this world. We need, we need to exercise this dominion in a way that recognizes that we still answer to God. So, so we need to do it in, in a way that submits to his will, and, and that does it in a way that, that is in, in line with what he desires, with what he has commanded of us, and, and what his character reflects. So if somebody does that, just imagine that, uh, and, and then the manager thinks, look, I'm getting tired of this. I'm just going to do what I want to do. And they make, start making a bunch of terrible decisions. And, and then they get a bad enough attitude. They're like, I just don't care. And, and they start to intentionally just mess things up. Right? What is the owner going to do? They're going to come back and, and, and they're going to hold that person accountable. And that's the way we need to think about the dominion that we have been given as mankind. We need to we answer to the Lord. And abortion in particular is beyond mere negligence. It's, it's beyond just bad management with, with bad in, without bad intention. Abortion directly violates the will of God. It's the destruction of God's special creation. So, so just imagine that, that someone's allowed you to borrow, you, you allow me to borrow a tool from you, a drill, and I just beat the thing to pieces, right? And then I leave it out in the rain and I bring it back to you. And Oh, here's your, here's your drill, right? Well, you, you would be very angry and over something that's really in the grand scheme of things, very insignificant. But we're, we're taking human life that God has given to us, the, the ability to procreate and to have children, and we're destroying it. What, what do you think God's response is going to be to that? How do you think God is going to feel about this? Ultimately, these aren't our children. This isn't our world in an ultimate kind of sense. He's, he's given them to us, and we use it as stewards. And, and, and abortion is just a very ugly distortion of that stewardship. Secondly, abortion is the sinful reverse of man's dominion. You remember that passage I read from Genesis 1? He said, be fruitful and multiply Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. Our, our dominion is tied up in us reproducing and having children and filling the earth. Do you see how abortion is exact opposite of what God has commanded? It's not just a failure to obey. It's an action that does the exact opposite. He says, 
go forth, have children, be fruitful and multiply, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And abortion is saying, no, let's, let's kill off humans. Let's get rid of humanity. And, and if you think I'm, I'm being too outlandish and, and making a statement like that, I, I would say this, there, there is a satanic desire to rid the world of humanity that runs throughout human history and abortion is just the latest inference of of that desire you see jesus says in john chapter 8 that that satan is a murderer from the beginning satan is looking to destroy the work of god in particular satan hates humanity and is seeking to destroy humanity so think back through human history all the way back from Pharaoh who killed the Hebrew children to ancient paganism in which they were required to offer child sacrifice to Herod at the time of Christ who decreed that the Jewish children be killed to the Romans who practiced exposure of unwanted children to the evil doctors of the 20th century uh, or evil dictators rather of the 20th century like Hitler and Stalin who have killed millions upon millions and all the way to present day to Margaret Sanger into Planned Parenthood, and we can see the, the impulse of, of that desire to exterminate humanity. Population control has always been a strong motivating force for those who push for abortion. When we look in places like China, and, and you see the, the uh, is it two-child policy or something like that, one-child, two-child policy that requires abortion, it's an evil and a wicked distortion of God's, of God's good design. Thirdly, it greatly devalues, abortion greatly devalues what God has highly honored. The whole point of this text and, and the passage in Psalm that is quoted is, is look how much honor God has bestowed upon humanity. And, and we are special in all of God's creation. Not, not because we're so great, but because God has bestowed that honor on us. That's, that's what this text says. He, he says here that, that, man is, that, that God is mindful of man, that God cares for man, that God has placed mankind in a uniquely exalted position, a little lower than the angels, that God has crowned mankind with glory and honor. God values human life. God has placed a, a high honor and a glory upon human life. And abortion is, is again, the exact opposite of that. It, it greatly devalues what God has highly honored. Contrast the, the remarkable honor that this text says that God has placed on humanity with the horrendous, disgusting, degrading treatment of our fellow human beings. And they are fellow human beings, right? We, we need to understand that. It's not simply an embryo. It's not simply a clump of cells. It is human life made in the image of God, and it is life that God highly honors, and we're destroying it. If God honors human life, how, how can we degrade it and devalue it? Secondly, the, the second implication from this text is this. Abortion will be brought to an end because of King Jesus. Because Jesus is king, we have hope. We should be involved in the political process however we can be, and, and we should stand for righteousness. Listen, Jesus says that we as Christians are to be salt and light. We're to be a preserving influence and, and light in this dark world, and this is one of these areas that we need to stand and we need to declare what is true because the world has lost its mind. They, they're out of their mind and, 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 and they're calling good evil and evil good. And so we need to stand there. And, and even if there's no hope in the immediate of bringing great change in, in the immediate, we need to be those who will stand there and continue to proclaim what's truth, although everybody else thinks you're crazy, right? And so we, we need to do that. And we need, to, we need to stand and, and, and do whatever we can to put an end to this, but we need to do that not, not with our hope in, in some political leader. Listen, your hope 
no, what president, whatever congressman, whatever governor you put your, your hope in, it's always going to be disappointed. It's always going to be a disappointed hope that they're never going to ultimately fulfill what, we're, what our hearts are longing for. We want righteousness. We want an end to abortion. We want to see these things happen. It's never going to happen in this life, but we have hope, though. We don't, we don't say that and then just say, well, we might as well give up. No, no, it is going to happen because of King Jesus. Jesus is king and one day he's going to return and one day he's going to make all things new and one day he's going to rule and reign in, in a perfect and an unmitigated kind of way and, and, and there will be righteousness. Matthew chapter 13 verse 41 says, the son of man when he returns will send his angels there's angels again, by the way. And they will gather out of his kingdoms all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. There, there is hope. Abortion will come to an end. And then thirdly, the third implication that I see regarding abor abortion in this text is this that abortion can be forgiven because Jesus has tasted death for everyone. Back in our text in, in Hebrews, do you see that? R remember the way that Jesus regained this dominion uh, was that he came and he died and he defeated death. But, but when he died, he was dying for our sins. And he wasn't just dying for those things we might think of as little sins, if you, if you even want to think in those terms. You know, sometimes we, we think of respectable sins, uh, things that we all maybe struggle with. He, he died, it says, do you see it? He didn't just die for the, the self-righteous church member. He tasted death for everyone. It doesn't matter what you've done. We, we can stand this morning, and, 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 and maybe there are some here who have, who, who have been through an abortion before, and, and, and there's shame, and maybe there's guilt there, and you think, man, I wish we just wish we wouldn't even talk about this. Well, listen, we have to talk about it. We have to declare what is right. We have to declare what's true, and, and yet at the same time, we can declare what is true, being that, that Christ has died for us. He's died for your sins, whatever they are no matter how great they are. And he's died for my sins, which are very great. He's died and he has tasted death for everyone. So if you're here this morning, there's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. There's forgiveness that is offered and extended. Don't, don't think, don't sit there and think, my, my sin is too great. What I have done, it is wicked. It is vile. Those are some of the words that I've used this morning to talk about abortion. But, but just because it's wicked and vile and wrong, it's a distortion of our, our dominion that we've been given over this world, it does not mean that there's no forgiveness. There's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. He has tasted death for everyone. I would encourage you this morning, whether it's abortion or whatever sin that, that you have committed, your hope is in Christ. Turn to him this morning. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you and we do thank you for the grace that we find through Jesus Christ. We, we thank you this morning, Lord, that you've been kind to us and, and that you show mercy to us. And we praise you this morning that we, we can long for and look forward to the kingdom that is to come, the, the world that is to come in which there is righteousness. And we pray it in Christ's name, amen.